Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. This is one of the most special editions of our Writers Live series at the Central Library because tonight we are welcoming a person who has been an inspiration for so many people. His new book, Holding Fast to Dreams, Empowering Youth from the Civil Rights Crusade to STEM Achievement, is a powerful and inspirational account of his journey as an educator, a university president, and a pioneer in developing programs for high-achieving students of all races. No better example of his ability to inspire young people is right here in front of us on the front row. Fifth grade students from the Matthew Henson Elementary School who a couple of weeks ago saw a documentary, Four Little Girls, and they were so taken by that story and the fact that someone at 12 years old was involved in the civil rights movement that when their teacher, Miss Charlene, told them, and Miss Powell told them that, well, you know, Dr. Rabowski lives in Maryland. They were really? Yes, and he's going to be at the Pratt Library in a couple of weeks. And they said, can we go? <laughs> and she had to find a way to get them here. But they are here tonight, front row, books ready. And as one young lady told me, I think that reading his book will inspire me to have better feelings inside about myself. So, welcome. <laughs> Dr. Freeman Rabowski's passion for education and partnering with institutions like the Pratt Library have made him a role model in this area. And of course you know, he has been named one of Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in the world. <laughs> Same edition as Warren Buffett, Apple's Tim Cook, Hillary Clinton, and President Obama. He also has been responsible, as you know, for propelling and catapulting UMBC into one of the best colleges in the nation, especially with his science programs. Someone said, move over Caltech and MIT. We are so excited about his emphasis on STEM, and in fact, Freeman, you should know that this November, the Pratt Library is going to offer citywide a Maryland STEM festival, and the library will be hosting free programs for children and teens throughout Baltimore. So you have inspired us to make sure that we include STEM throughout the city, and we just know that you will be supportive. But I know that all of you are eager to hear him. So please welcome back to the Pratt Library, Dr. Freeman Robowski. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carla, for all that you do. I am especially pleased tonight, and Jackie would want me to say this, that anytime we have children in, in the audience, the, the challenge is to say something that would be of interest to adults and to get us to reflect on where we are as a society. 
but also to make sure that I don't bore these kids at 7.30 at night because Lorraine still has her math homework to do later on. She tried to give me the homework. It was a, it was a brilliant move on her part. She said, you like math? Look at this. And when I was looking, she said, just keep it. I got that, all right? She was going to tell a teacher tomorrow, he took my, the dog and her homework, all right? I got that, Lorraine. But you have your homework to do tonight, right? So maybe I can say something that may inspire you. I'm beginning with words that some of you will know, that are, words that are not actually in my book, but words that inspire me and that will speak to many of you in the room as you think about your upbringing as children. It's the definition of community, the protector of hope, love, and faith, the builder of tomorrow, the designer of miracles, the provider of nourishment, a kinship of kindness, the lifter of burdens, a gathering of grace and goodness, the hands of support, an oasis of optimism, the love that built this house. Some of you know that to be the the Ronald McDonald house. But the definition is so powerful when thinking about community that it is what comes to my mind. When I think about this book and my writing about my own childhood, growing up in Birmingham, one of my uh, friends who grew up with me, Mary Bush, is here and from Washington, and we grew up together and in a neighborhood where parents worked very hard to prepare their children for a world that in some ways might not always be fair, but for a world that had many people who were willing to give us a chance to show that we could think well and that we could work hard and that we could achieve. And the book is the result of three lectures that I gave in Boston several years ago for Simmons College. They invited me with Beacon Press to think about, to reflect on my childhood when I was your age, when I was growing up in Birmingham. And to think about those experiences during childhood that helped to shape my thinking about education broadly and about what my colleagues and I have been doing at UMBC uh, with some focus on my own area of research, which is STEM, which is the idea of science, technology, engineering, and math. And I immediately said to them, but, but my own education, though a lot of math in it, started with something that was far more fundamental. It was reading. It was simply learning to read and think well. It was being read to as a little child and, and having characters who became my friends. And the book talks about that childhood of being fortunate to have a mother who had been a child maid who grows up to become an English teacher and who was determined that I would love books. And in a home where books were so important. And, and so as I thought about my own childhood 
and my thinking about even teaching math and science or my thinking about what helps to develop a sense of self in people, I went back to fundamentals, the importance of helping children to have a sense of self, to believe in themselves, to believe that Lorraine can do that math homework tonight, to know that there's a connection between reading and, and language skills and writing and thinking. Some of you who know about teaching writing know that clear writing comes from clear thinking. That the clearer one can think, the more clearly one can write in simple standard English. And the book really does focus in that first part called Standing Up for Justice on growing up in what America is not accustomed to hearing about, a middle-class home where parents were religious and strong in their faith and strong in their belief that nothing takes the place of hard work. My parents had five jobs between them. Both were educators. My father had left education because he could make more money as a laborer but he was still teaching men at the factory in reading and math, preparing them to take the GED, that my mother would work on it in the evening in the GED. And so they would work with people. The big deal then was helping people to get high school diplomas. And my mother was working to begin to help people to go to college at a time when people had not been fortunate to have a college education. Remember at that time, only 11% in the 60s, only 11% of Americans um, actually had a, 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 a 10% actually had uh, earned a bachelor's degree. And it was only about 2 to 3% of blacks, but only about 10% to 11% of whites. And so my parents were very fortunate. And we lived in a neighborhood where people had had the opportunity to get good jobs and to be buying their homes and to be raising their children to teach them to not focus on being victims, but to focus on the notion that education makes the difference. That if you learn to read and think well and to compute, but most important, to have that sense of self and you show what you can do in the world, the world will appreciate the value you bring to the world. And that was the environment. And so in our neighborhood, nothing was more important than the church and the family and the values that Americans in general had, regardless of race. And I, I don't think people realize sometimes just how much Americans have in common in that way when they are fortunate to have people who are able to make a living and have a home and feed them and bring those children up. And yet when we left our neighborhood, our parents were always trying to be protective because the world was saying to us we could not be a part of the larger society. We could not go to the better schools at that time, the schools with more resources. There were some wonderful African-American teachers in our all-black schools, very committed, who used their own money, and I dedicate the book to the teachers in Birmingham, to those black teachers who gave their own money when they were paid less money than white teachers with the same education. They were determined to do the best that they could, but they did not have the resources. 
And so I'm sitting in church one evening, not wanting to be there. And my parents have, in, in a sense, bribed me into being there by giving me the two things I loved most. Something to eat. I love to eat. I was a chubby little kid. And mathematics. So I'm sitting in the back and I'm eating these M&Ms, the kind with the peanuts, right? They're better, right? And I'm doing my math and I'm listening. They wanted me in the room that I could at least get some since I was 12. And, and the, the, the gentleman says to the audience, if the children participate in this peaceful march, all of America will understand that even our babies know the difference between right and wrong and that they want a better education. And I looked up because I was so tired of getting those, those torn, braggedy books from the white schools that they would give us after white kids had used them for years. There was something psychologically damaging about given book, get, being given books that others no longer wanted. And when parents who could afford better books would say, well, can we buy his books? No, because then he will seem different from the other children. So you have to use these awful books. And it, it was a signal to all of us that we didn't matter. And so when this man said something about our participating in this peaceful march, I looked up and I said, who is that guy? And of course, his name was Dr. Martin Luther King. And I listened, and I was inspired, and I went home, and I said, well, I, I've got to go. And of course, they said, absolutely not. <laughs> Wait a minute. And I said, what? They said, we're not, you, know, you can't, no, because those children will have to go to jail. And I said, well, that's, you made me go and listen. You told me to go and listen, and I finally did. I stopped doing my math to listen to this guy. He makes sense to me, and I want to go. And they said, no. And we're sorry, but no, it's not safe. And I said, you know, you guys are hypocrites. Now, at that time, you did not tell your parents that they were hypocrites. <laughs> Mary, you did not tell your parents they were My daddy said, boy, go to your room. <laughs> I knew I was in trouble. I'd gone a bit too far, all right? They did not come in that night, but the next morning they came in, they had not slept, and I could tell they'd actually been crying. It was a, a painful night for them, but they came in and said, it was not that we didn't trust you. We didn't trust the people who would be over you in that jail. And, but if you want to do this, we will put you in God's hands. And so they allowed me to go. Now, Kids, I want to tell you one thing. I was not a courageous child. If a fight broke out, Freeman was running the other way, all right? So don't think I was this big, brave guy, okay? The only thing I ever attacked was a math problem. You got that, all right? So I was not ready to fight anybody. But I did want a better education. So I did go and I did spend a week, a terrible week in jail. And they were not nice to us. But it taught me a very important lesson that even children in the fifth grade can have the power within themselves to choose their future, to have some impact on their destiny, that you have a choice right now to decide what's right and what's wrong. You know what's right and what's wrong. And you have the ability 
to say to somebody, I'm not going to do this because it's not the right thing, or I am going to do this because it is. And I learned from that lesson something that I will never forget, that each of us, whether we are 12 or 80, can make choices. And our choices can shape our destiny. And so you are more powerful, young people, than you realize right now. Who you are right now will shape who you will be in the future. And so the book's title, Holding Fast to Dreams, comes from the poem by Langston Hughes that says, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. It's the notion that you never, you dream about the possibilities and then you never give up on that dream. And the book talks about my dreaming to help kids get excited, Lorraine, about mathematics, to love to read. Because what I learned to the teachers in the room was anyone who's good in math or science or physics or engineering has to be a good reader because we don't express problems in numbers. We express problems in language. And you have to be able to read the language and understand the relationships among words before you go to equations and solving and those kinds of things. And that's true in any discipline. And what I also learned in becoming a mathematician was that the time my parents spent in having me take piano lessons and getting a chance to go to New England and, and to look at great art all of those things inspired me to understand what it means to be a human being. That taking piano lessons really did make me better in mathematics. That I came to understand more about discipline and timing and reading notes. And just as we learn so much from poets and from writers of prose that composers express feelings that we can experience through the music and that those experiences can be a part of our development as human beings, whether we're going to be a scientist or a lawyer or whatever we're going to do. And what am I saying? I'm saying that my upbringing taught me that we must teach children broadly across disciplines. That even when I talk about STEM achievement, it's not just about math and science. No, it's about the arts and humanities and social sciences. And that children need in their schools a chance to appreciate the arts, just as they come to appreciate reading and math. And the experiences for standing up for justice, the first chapter in the book, led to my becoming someone who would speak on behalf of children in the civil rights movement. Why would children go to jail? And the experiences of the bombing of the church, the kids were asking me about the little girls. Mary and I went through that. The awful experience. And hearing Dr. King say at their funeral that life can be as hard as steel and yet one must not give up. All of those experiences prepared me to one day be an educator and to think about 
the vision I had of helping people become good in math and science. And I talk in the book about having the privilege of leading a university with students from 150 countries. Now, you have to understand that a child who grows up believing he will only be around people like himself, loving his own, but realizing that I had never spoken to anybody white, ever. That when my parents sent me to New England, and I talk about this, to see what it would be like to be in an integrated education, not even white teachers would talk to me. I'd raise my hand and they would look right through me. I was Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. They were not mean-spirited. They just ignored me. And the kids would not talk to me. So the idea that one day I would be president of a university with students from 150 countries is so far from what my imagination allowed me to think of as a possibility that it goes beyond any dream I could have imagined. When I became president and my mother came up, my father uh, had died and my mother came up. She had always thought that, that somehow she was worried because one day I was going to reach the pinnacle, which, which was for her, it was becoming a high school principal in a black school. And that's, that's a wonderful job. You get my point? But that was what she knew. You get, you know, so the idea that I was at a university, number one, and that there were people from all over the world was for her absolutely beyond the possibilities at first. So when we have these jobs now, when people of color have opportunities to work around the world, it is beyond what we imagined about the dreams. And yet these dreams have come true because there is a side of America that has said, we can be better than what we've been before. And, and so when I think about the experiences at UMBC, there is no doubt in my mind that Jackie and I are still in Baltimore. We are still at UMBC. I am still at UMBC. Quite frankly, for many reasons, wonderful people there. But I met Bob Meyerhoff. Straight up, I met Bob Meyerhoff. And... So amazing. I didn't know he was going to be here tonight. So he can close his ears if he doesn't want to hear this. But I met Bob Meyerhoff and we had this amazing conversation about black males. I'd never heard a white man ask me so many questions about why things were going poorly for white black males. Why was it that when you look on TV, he said, the only thing positive you see about black males is about sports and that you always see violence. And this was 25 years ago. Nobody was talking about these things at that time. And he said, what can we do? And we were at UMBC trying to figure out what could we do to help more minority kids succeed in science, black kids in particular, because they were not. And there were a lot of white students who were not succeeding either. But I said, if we can figure out something with these African-American students, we can learn things that can help all students. And he began to partner with us then. And amazingly, I'll never forget thinking back to my childhood. What were the things that helped me in that civil rights movement to help children come together, to build the strength, to go up against police and dogs and fire hoses? It was building community. It was teaching them that it's not about one person, but people coming together for a noble cause that this movement was bigger than any one person, that we could think through the problems 
remain calm, breathe deeply, and figure out, just as we would a math problem, how to begin to solve it. And Bob gave more, he and Jane, more than money they gave themselves. In the questions, some of you have heard me use the comment that I, I Robbie, when I, 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 Robbie, the Nobel laureate from the 40s in physics, said that when he was growing up in New York, all of his friends' mothers would ask them at the end of a school day, what did you learn in school today? He said, not my Jewish mother. She would say, what question did you ask today? Did you ask a good question? And the practice of encouraging the curiosity made him the thinker he became. Well, that's what they were doing, and that's what we had to do with that program and then with other programs. And if you look at what we've done at UMBC in STEM achievement but beyond, there are scholars programs and Sherman scholars and math and science teachers. There's an artist scholars program. There's a Sunheim scholars program. The Linehan artist scholars, the Sunheim Sherman scholars. These are all programs, the choice program. These are all programs designed to help either staff or students or both build community and figure out what we can do to make people better, to enhance what they have or what they would have as individuals. How do you go about making the situation better for a big group? You pull together community, you take adults, and you have those adults working with those students at any level. You think through the challenges that the people face. You inspire them to think about not just a salary, not just a job, but about who they want to be as a leader. It's what we did in the Children's March. It's what all these scholars programs have done. And as a result of that, we at UMBC are raising a generation, not just the people in the STEM areas, but the, the Dresher Humanities Scholars and the Linhan Artist Scholars, the Sunheim Public Affairs Scholars, and these little kids, these mainly boys of color in the Choice Program, first-time offenders who come to our campus regularly, whom we supervise 24 hours a day, children who come from challenging situations, trying to say to them, all things are possible. I want to close with because I want to take questions. There have been times when some of these choice children on our campus, these little boys from Cherry Hill and other areas, will be walking with older students who've been around and with some college kids, and they'll say, that's the president right there. And one of the little kids, sometimes 11 years old, will say, president of what? And they said, president of UMBC. And they'll be pointing to me. And one of the little smart kids will say, He's not the president of this white school. <laughs> and they'll call me over and, and they'll want me to prove who I am to them. <laughs> All right? And so I'll give them my card and it'll say Freeman Rabowski, president. <laughs> and somehow um, they'll say, that ain't Freeman Rabowski. Looking at me, they said, That's, they can't pronounce that last name, but they, they know it's not me. All right? I have to get out my driver's license and a card to prove I am on my own campus, all right? And then they just look at me like, how? And one kid had the nerve one time to say, are you black? I said, look at me. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I say, you can be me. You just have to read and pay attention. And listen to the adults. You can do anything. You can hold fast to the dreams. I end the book by saying 
that all of what we want to do will require culture change. Not a change just in behavior, but a change in our values, our perspectives, our willingness to act and to help children who may not have the parents that we had in our homes. Telling stories is just the first step. Inspiring others is the next. Looking in the mirror comes next. And then comes looking the problem solidly in the face, looking at the data and analyzing it and understanding it and bringing those who can enact change into the conversation to solve the problem. You know, I, again, I could not have believed I would be standing here 50 years later talking to this group. The best thing I can tell you is that where I end is where I started, the notion of community. Baltimore is an amazing community. Regardless of what media may say, we have so many people of every race wanting to help our children of every race. And I challenge you to be inspired by that definition with which I began, the protector of hope, love, and faith, the builder of tomorrow, the designer of miracles, a kinship of kindness, a lifter of burdens, a gathering of grace and goodness, the hands of support, an oasis of optimism, the love that built this house, Baltimore. Thank you all very much. So let's take questions. Okay, there are mics. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be talking at home. This is home. I'm, uh, Bob and Rita know I'm always talking other places. And that's Jeff Greif, one of my co-authors. I mean, I really appreciate that for your being here. Thank you. The, uh, I see somebody. Yes, sir. Anybody yes, have no um, I just wanted to let you know that I was a product of the Choice Program. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Yes, while well, I was in um, high school at yeah. Southwestern Senior High School. Wonderful, man. And um, it was a real blessing to have the students, you know, mentor us and uh, really be there for us and take us out on. Now, that was many years ago. <laughs> I appreciate you. But that. I'm 33 years old, so I was in high school probably about 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the choice program is really a good program. Thank you. Um, I would like to thank I would like to thank you for uh, coming. Uh, one of my dreams, uh, well, two of my dreams were getting into law school, and I was able to get into law school uh, at a school in California. Wow. Where the tuition is only eighteen thousand for four years. Wow. And uh, and it's bar approved. <laughs> and um, also starting a uh, school. Um, I have a school, uh, which is, um, the, the, the school is Word Academy, and it's registered and recognized by the state. And one of the components, three of the, one of the components is adult education, where I'm helping uh, young people get their high school diplomas. Yes. And the joy is that seeing single mothers yes. get their high school diploma, yes. and so happy to get the transcript that they're able to go on to Coppin. Yes, um, yes. One of them applied to your school. Yes. 
uh, one of them applied to Morgan, mm-hmm. and they called me, inboxed me on Facebook, and said I got to step into Stratford. Mm-hmm. I got to step into Anne Arundel County. I got to mm-hmm. step into this school. Yes. So you know what you were saying about high school diploma education is um, such a blessing. What my real question is, I want to know what are uh, what resources are out there mm-hmm. for like private schools such as myself? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the school set up 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. I'm in the planning stage now mm-hmm. of the KD-12 and the preschool. But I want to know what uh, partnerships could I get into for uh, STEM? I, I play the organ and keyboard, so I already got mm-hmm. the music down, pat, the arts down pat. So I could teach the kids about that, but but the STEM program, I really want a good STEM mm-hmm, program. Mm-hmm. Let me suggest that. And, and what advice can you give me as an educator, new educator starting a school? Let, let me first of all ask everybody to give them a round of applause. For I'm very proud of you, man. Very proud of you. It's always great to hear when one of our graduates from the Choice Program has gone ahead and done well and is inspired to want to help others. Let me suggest that we get you with one or two of my colleagues, okay, so we can look at what you're thinking about doing and give you some career advice about that. Think you want to do that? You've got the right motivation. One of the challenges I say to anybody wanting to start a school is it costs more money than you can imagine. So I'm more interested in seeing with all the schools we have started, good people like you can help us with some of these schools that we already have. You see what I'm saying? And so let me get you with some people. Let's have some conversations about it. You want to help children. I get your point. Let us help you to help children. What we're doing with the Lakeland Elementary Program right now and some others, and both charter and regular public, I really want to help more young people become teachers and work in education. We need that. So see me after and so let me get you some of my people to work, okay? Give them another round of applause. Sir, you? <laughs> question, please. Yes. Hello, doctor. Excuse any deficiencies in my speech, but I wanted to share with you and ask you a question. Yes. Um, I wanted to quote Sigmund Freud. Um, if a child's basic needs, I'm a substitute, is met, wouldn't he achieve? Sorry, I, I'm not sure I If heard. a man's basic needs are met, couldn't he achieve? If the child's basic needs are met, the child is on the way to achieving. That Those needs must be met before that child can, with help, achieve. That May I also correct. share with you, though, there was a time when um, I had a, uh, I didn't have a, a, a good life. Mm-hmm. But I, I do believe in the Lord, and he pulled me through. I was able to obtain a bachelor's degree, but it only gave me the benefit of a high school education. Yes. So, and the only way I was able to, like you say, uh, children, they can do it. They have to be in an environment where they can think. Yes. They can't be troubled. Right, right, right. Yes. So, yes. If people really want to help children, yeah. they have to first see that their basic needs are met. Yes, yes. And yes. the public schools are failing us. Mm-hmm. Children have to fight their way to school. They have to carry weapons to school to protect themselves. The teachers turn blind, blind eyes. The whole society turn an eye. And um, the children themselves are blind. Like the children is running around, like during the um, Freddie um, Gray riots. You know, people blaming the youth. The youth can only do what they're taught to do. Mm-hmm. So we really want to help, because when you don't help the children, we hurt ourselves. Mm-hmm. In the words of Dr. King, 
cancer anywhere or injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm -hmm. So we can't say it's us and don't look out after them. Everybody got to look out after everybody. Because other than that, America is a failure. Thank you very much. There, there is no doubt that. Let me say several things. Um, first of all, there are, there are many teachers who work really hard to do the right thing. And I want, let's give teachers a round of applause. It's really hard to do teachers. Very hard. Um, uh, the speaker's point, though, about the challenges that children face, that we do have to look at ways of giving children support when they're in environments that are pulling them down in one way or the other, when they are challenged because of circumstances. Our community, the reason I read the definition of community is that a part of our responsibility, I believe, in America, is to help families to help their children to be healthy emotionally, psychologically, right? So they can learn because basic needs are not just eating. It's all of what it means to have a sense of self and to feel safe. You're absolutely right. And a part of what um, a number of people, Dr. Jim Comer, the African-American psychiatrist professor from uh, Yale, talks about, he's a part of this commission I'm on, is the need to make sure we're looking at the whole development of the child and ways of strengthening and supporting that child. Dr. Greif would say that. I mean, the fact is that we need to think through how to help children on their way to school, while they're in school, when they go home at night, to take those things into account. I mean, this is the kind of thing we have to do with choice kids because they have many challenging situations. Many of us could not imagine the hell that some children go through. I mean, you're absolutely right. And it's very hard to learn if you're going through all of that, if you don't get the support that you need. So your point is well taken. I get that. I do get that. You wanted to ask me a question? Yes, sir. Oh, there's water behind. Thank you. I've been asking for water, and she was trying to tell me there is water right here. If I just look around, right? Thank you. Yes. Hi. Hi. So uh, my name is Meryl DeBrose, and I graduated from UMBC in 2006 um, with a biological sciences degree. Um, I met my husband over a Petri dish in genetics lab there as well. So uh, very, Sounds like a UMBC romance yes, story. Yes, exactly. Um, excellent experience. Big period of growth for me at UMBC. And um, I just want to say thank you for your holistic vision for all of the resources that UMBC had. It was phenomenal. My question to you, you talked about when your mom came to the campus and how kind of her vision for you was yeah. to just, you know, be a principal at a high school. She didn't want me to do that either. She, yeah. she, she wanted me to stay in the classroom, which is a noble. She wanted me to stay with the kids, exactly. with these children right here, right? <laughs> mm. My question is, what are you most proud of? Mm. There's, number one, students, our students. Amazing students. When that young man got up to speak, who was a member of the Choice Program, Choice Program is for first-time offenders. And if without some support from somebody, they could be either dead or in prison for life with us paying the bill. Did you get that? When that young man gets up and tells me about going to school and then wanting to figure out a way to help other children, that gives me goosebumps. Give him another round of applause, would you? And I want him to know that. I really want him to know that. Because it could have been a different... He made some choices 
that some of his friends may not have made, on, where sometimes others made choices for them. And they were killed or they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're in prison for life. You get my point? So what I'm really, really proud of when I see that, as well as people who meet over a Petri dish and laugh. I love it because I know they're going to have some really high achieving kids. All right. <laughs> yeah, go right ahead. Yes. Good evening. Hi. Um, my son is currently attending UMBC huh. and um, he's having a wonderful time Thank there. You. He's a STEM uh, student. And I just wanted to make some a contribute to something someone else just said. Yes. Because I grew up outside this country and very difficult circumstances. When I got to college, I couldn't afford textbooks. Right. So I would go to the library and get used books, uh, borrow others' books. So I, I think just, um, it's just an anecdote, but to say that it's not so much providing basic needs for a child in order to learn. Right. I was always motivated by, I had that sense of self. I knew I always did well and I loved learning. But I don't know how you transfer that to someone else. But you mentioned that, um, the community and the sense of self. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can't really say that that was so much of it. I was always sort of like a bookworm and a loner. But mm -hmm. how do you translate that sense of self mm -hmm. and that love for learning mm -hmm. to another person? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's an excellent question. It really is. I have found over the years that when adults who are privileged to not only love, but to have a love of learning in one way or the other. And the person doesn't have to be college educated. I've seen grandmothers who've just had a love of wanting to see their children or their grandkids learn to read. When someone, some adult, keeps looking at that child and saying, you can do this, you can do this math tonight, There's something about that because what she knows is, is I believe in her. I know she can do it. And that when she does it, she's going to feel good about the fact that she did it. She's going to tell the teacher tomorrow, Dr. Bosca told me I could do this math. And I did it. And they need that reinforced over and over and over again. You know, uh, it, there's no doubt that we see in this country that people of color, who, people in general who come from other countries often are more driven than we are. One of the reasons that my students who've been here in this country for generations of families are sometimes fascinated or amazed by other students on campus is that we in America sometimes really don't know how hard some in other countries study and work. Um, I remember a young woman saying to me, graduate of Poly, a good school in Baltimore, that she wanted to change rooms because her roommate worked so hard. No, she said the, the roommate just looked at her strangely. And I said, well, what do you mean she looks at you strange? And she said, she, she doesn't like me. I said, well, just stay there this semester and see what you think. And in a focus group at the end of the semester, the two women came in together and the young woman from Polly, young black woman said, I want to thank Dr. Hrabowski for asking me to stay in this room. She said, I, I'll tell you why I was so uncomfortable. She said, when I would go to bed at night, my roommate would still be at her desk studying. When I would wake up in the morning, 
she was already at her desk studying. I never saw her sleep the first half of the semester. And that bothered me a lot. I did not know a human being could work that hard. All right. She said, then I decided I'm not going to bed until she goes to bed. So she said she'd be sitting at a desk, right? Pinching herself, drinking water, pushing herself to work harder. And sometimes I'd wake up before she wouldn't get to my desk. And I, I would love for her to wake up and see me at my desk studying. She said, but there was this one strange thing about that. I said, what? She said, my grades got better. I said, no. You don't mean there's a relationship between this work and whatever. But it is true that, quite frankly, if you look at the highest achieving young people and older people in our country, in STEM particularly, but but quite frankly, throughout the 20th century, many of the highest achievers went to the Brooklyn College, City College, the you know, the, the, the poor person's Harvard of the, you know, Harvard, and they went to the very top. Their parents didn't even speak English well. They, their parents came from European countries, but they had that sense of values in the home, that hunger for the knowledge. We see that among the Caribbean population in some way, and the Nigerian population, and obviously Chinese and Indian. And what am I saying? I'm not saying that we don't have some Americans with that, but I'm saying we can learn from people who come to this country with that hunger. Now, here's the challenge. When children have never been around that, or they've got other kinds of problems they're dealing with in their homes, it's hard to have that kind of hunger. Let's be fair to those children. I'm saying when they have been dealing with violence and they have not had the support and didn't have those books in their home, right? It's harder. It really is harder. I have found that sometimes when there's a grandmother or somebody talking to them, reading with the Bible. It's amazing what things like that can do. The stories from the Bible, quite frankly, about stories and and experiences that can give that child that sense of self, the reading, the attention. Every child needs attention and love. And the more attention you give, the more the child begins to develop that sense of self. It's so important. It really is. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. A question from you. Give her a hand for having the courage to get up, first of all. Hello, my name is Kamari, and I had a question. Why do you love math? Oh, Kamari, why do I love math? Why do I love to breathe? Let me think. (laughs) Oh, what do you love? Let me ask you that first. My favorite subject is writing. Writing, oh yeah. And why do you love writing? Give a hand for loving to write, first of all. Why do you love writing? I love writing because I like to write paragraphs about my feelings and myself. Oh, I like that. You like to write paragraphs about feelings and yourself and to express yourself, right? Yes. Well, believe it or not, math has always given me a way to look at the world. When I look at this room, I'm looking at something called a rectangle, and I can see squares, and I'm thinking about the heights of people and their ages, and I'm thinking about um, the amount of time I've spent so far, and I'm thinking about how long I can expect you all before you get bored, right? And I'm thinking of all kinds of math word problems. Mathematics is, a, is another language that we use to express the vision of the world. Everything around you my weight, my height, how much I'm talking, all these are things. And so math, most important though, is a way of learning to solve problems. Everybody will have problems in life. 
And math just gives you another way to learn how to be patient, remain calm, and look at the problem from different sides, and to think about it. My wife has been building, working to build a, a part of a deck on the house, and it's all about geometry. And she was the, I fell in love with her because she was the Virginia geometry champion. I said, wow, I want to marry that girl. Wow, I really did. And, and I have watched her geometry. Everything you look at is geometry. If you look at it, right? And so what I'm saying to you is math is another subject, like reading, that will give you some tools to solve problems. So when you do that math that you're talking about, also math is really good and help you to make money. Ooh, nothing wrong with making money. You remember that, okay? Because it can help you to help other people, all right? Give another round of applause. Come. Yes, yeah. we have time for one more question before the book signing. Come, go ahead. Uh-huh. Hello. Hi. How are you? All right, come. Good. <laughs> Carmen Green, my question for you is, with the prevalence of um, and the accessibility of information becoming more readily, re- readily available yes. to students. So, you know, they don't necessarily have to buy a $100 book to right. get the information. Yes. Um, what are we doing to sort of, what shifts do you see in STEM, and what are we doing to capitalize and leverage on that mm-hmm. to get our, our kids more excited about STEM yes. to be able to complete, compete globally against? I think it's a great question, Carmen. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. I would say that using technology creatively um, can help us bring the kids into the work. Children will not, college students will not sit and listen for 45 minutes to an hour. The president of Stanford spoke at our college president's conference last year, and he asked the, the audience this question. How long do you think the, uh, is the average amount of time that college students listen to a lecture before they tune out. Somebody, what do you think? I heard 20. Anybody else? 45. Anybody else? It's eight minutes. Eight minutes. It's the average amount of time across ca- all kinds of colleges and universities. After about eight minutes. Now, you all are 20th century learners, except for the kids. What do I mean by that? Most of you are tuning me out every 15, every five minutes or so, thinking about what else you have to do tonight. You listen to something I say, then you think about something else, you'd come back, you know, if you were really attentive. Others were saying, will he finally finish, please, wait a minute, right? But the fact is, the neuroscientists will tell you, 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 people can't focus for more than about 20 minutes anyway, at most. When I asked a, a person at NIH about this, he said, Freeman, we tell people 20 minutes trying to get them to focus for 20 minutes. <laughs> You know, because we tune in and out all the time. Mary Miller knows that from over in Washington. (laughs) We do. So what am I saying? We must find creative ways. This is what we've done at UMBC in STEM and in writing and psychology. We have now redesigned courses to focus more on active learning, on people working in groups, on having conversations, whether it's in chemistry or in writing. I was in writing a writing course today, and what they, what's happening is you use the technology to have students learning how to critique each other's writing while the faculty member works with three or four people in discussing theirs, and then they move around that way. The faculty member gets more time with each person in small groups while the students learn how to critique each other's writing, which is a very important skill. 
You get my point? Rather than sitting there all day and then writing something and then a week later getting a paperback. So that there were, and then just one other example, the most fascinating innovation course this year for me was a course involving um, the war, uh, right at the, during the Civil War um, of um, Pratt Street, the Pratt Street War. I think it was like 1861, something like that. And we had a history course and a computer science course. And the purpose of the course was not only to understand what happened in this war, in this, this uprising, but to use gaming, computational work, to create a game that could then be taught to teachers who could use it with middle school and high school teachers. And it was fascinating to see these computer scientists and these history majors struggling with this content and trying to figure out how best to present it while learning the concepts and understanding the themes and what was going on in the course. So they got all the content, but that was almost the second point. The real point was how to get them to really have great conversations about critical thinking about these topics and to teach the history majors more of the technology and the technology majors more of the history. You see the interdisciplinarity and what was fascinating was we had a a kind of competition on campus to, to determine who should play the course, what should be the the, the person to play the course. And they finally decided that the best way to have the person playing the game was to have the player become a fox. So you become this fox and you're going through the war in the, on the computer virtually and you're learning all of the questions that the generals had to deal with. You're learning the themes, but you're a fox because you can move in and out very easily. And it was something that would fascinate any of us. It was amazing. And what am I saying? I'm saying we can use technology coupled with caring adults and teaching people to work in groups in very special ways. When we work with the choice kids, there are so many times when we use a 14 or 15-year-old to help a 12-year-old. And I don't care how tough that 15-year-old may be. When he has the responsibility of helping that 12-year-old, he becomes the adult. And it's amazing how he rises to the occasion. The same way we were able to rise to the occasion when we marched with Dr. King. Thank you all very much. Thank you for inspiring us again. And please join us for book signing. Thank you all for being here. This was a special night. (laughs)